Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, today at our NBC Sports Charlotte studios, where I am joined by my NBCSports.com colleague, Dustin Long. Dustin, thanks for being back on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. So the reason I wanted to have you on, Dustin, is we had a story that we finally got some closure on heading into the off week last week, and that was BK Racing, which had been in bankruptcy in Chapter 11 for much of the season, was awarded to a trustee, and then was put up for bid. And we had this situation last week where the bidding process was finalized, the team was awarded to Front Row Motorsports. This was a story that unfolded over several months. Slowly. Very slowly. And I thought it would be good to take a deep dive into it and try to take a real granular look at what was learned from it. Because I think we did learn a lot from it, but the information kind of came out in dribs and drabs and in court hearings, and you invested a ton of time and energy (laughs) into covering those hearings. So the goal of this podcast then is to provide an overview of the case, but also provide some insight and analysis with Dustin here, who again covered everything that transpired in the courtroom about what we learned, because we did learn, I think, a lot about NASCAR team ownership. I think if we look at it again in one fell swoop here, I, I think more will come out of it. Let's start with the basics Dustin, and that is why BK Racing went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. BK Racing just had not paid bills, and uh, it had several loans to Union Bank and Trust, a a bank in Virginia. Coming into this season, the bank filed stuff in in, uh, state court, and they were, you know, looking to get um, control of the charter because that was the most valuable asset that BK Racing had. And at the time, in January, they stated that the organization owed more than $8 million in loans that had not been paid in accrued interest. Then you get to February, the three days before the Daytona 500, uh, Ron Devine puts BK Racing in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which according to court documents, when it was filed, was 30 minutes before this hearing in state court on the of the bank's behalf where the bank was seeking a receiver essentially like a trustee to oversee the organization basically you know there was it was money owed uh, to union bank and trust the irs had there was there was all sorts of tax liens out there you know what you had was all this coming together three days before the daytona 500 they put this team in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and the, and the question was at the time was like, okay, what's going to happen to this team? Because I think in theory you could miss a race, but if you miss more than one race, NASCAR can take the charter because that you're not you're not doing your obligations 
of running every race. Essentially, you're supposed to run every race with the charter. So then it became a question of what's going to happen to this team. Uh, is suddenly a charter going to become uh, available at the beginning of the season? You know, while everybody's paying attention about speeds and drafting and this and that, there there was certainly a drama that was going on at the back of the of the garage, and and even at that time there was an issue of getting bills paid to the engine provider, and were they going to be able to turn the engine on to 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 go out and make a lap and and qualify and and things like that. So there were all these things going on. So the next day after after Ron Devine. Um, puts the team in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. He's out behind the hauler, and he's talking to a few of us uh, reporters. And, and basically, I mean, he says, he says, I put this in Chapter 11 bankruptcy to keep the bank from getting this charter, from taking this team. The bank that was owed $8 million. Over $8 million. And they wanted to put it in receivership, meaning they would essentially wrest control yes. away from Ron Devine, who is, can we call him, is he the principal owner I think we can call of BK yeah, Racing yeah, at that time? Yeah. Okay. So he tells you guys two days before the Daytona 500, the biggest race of the season, Yes. I'm putting this team in Chapter 11, which is also known as a reorganization. It's a way that generally as a company, you protect yourself from your creditors from yeah. seizing control. He intended to do this in a way that he thought that he'd be protected from losing the team. Yeah. I mean, he said, he said, look, we're going to get this resolved. I, I want it resolved. The bank wants it resolved. And, and he was adamant. He's like, I'll see you at Homestead. We will be at Homestead, which is something that, you know, even last year, there were times where there were all these different things with liens and court documents. And, you know, I know I, I wrote something one time last year about it, and I, I got a phone call from him. He was, he was not pleased about it. Even then, he said, you know, we'll be at Homestead. We'll be at Homestead. And, and you know, I saw him at Homestead last year. And he's, like, he's like, see, I told you we were going to be at Homestead. So that's what he said at Daytona two days before the Daytona 500, one day just after putting the team in receivership, is like, we're going to get this resolved. I, I, I'm confident in it, but I, I wanted to keep the bank from getting the charter because obviously that's the most valuable asset. Now the question is, how much is that asset worth? Because, you know, charter sales have, have been hush-hush, uh, and, and that was something that came out in all this too as we started to find out more information about that. Right, and we're going to get to all that charter information. Before we move into the next phase of what happened in court, you just remind me, Dustin, I'd forgotten about the drama going into the Daytona yeah. 500 where the team had to make a lap. And there was some drama, as you said, yes. as to whether they'd be allowed to do that because they leased the engines and the engine supplier hadn't been paid. And there was yeah. some drama in terms of, like, would the team be allowed to actually start the car uh, because they needed the engine codes for the yes. FI from the person <laughs> who was leasing the engine. So all of that was swirling yeah. around yes. heading into Daytona. There was a lot going on. Yeah, there was, there was certainly a lot. And then... After Daytona, the next phase of the court process of Chapter 11 was the judge had to decide whether or not to put a trustee in charge of the team. Essentially, is that how that was ended up being that ended up being done in March? So mm -hmm. a month later, the court approved a trustee that was recommended, and it was uh, Matt Smith of the Finley Group. Part of the thing is the Finley Group does is reorganizes businesses in Chapter 11. You know, one of the questions when he was put on the stand was how much racing experience he'd had some racing experience uh, had worked with i want to say it was like a road race team where he hadn't been in this type of position but basically had their company been hired and offered services and helping a team through some challenging times with their finances but had not taken over team through a court order or anything like that you know they put him on the stand for a while and and the, the judge ended up approving it so this was the judge's decision or preference to put Matt Smith. It was a recommendation, and then eventually the judge has to approve it. I mean, right. so so I mean, again, it was, it was if he had been brought up and the judge didn't approve it, or there were enough objections presented, 
if one of us had, had been recommended and put up there, I'm sure there would be enough objections to say, no, they don't know what they're doing and the judge wouldn't approve it. Um, I think there was uh, there was some concern from some of the, the groups that were owed money in the racing industry is just like what kind of a racing person this was. But after him being on the stand, they kind of uh, withheld their w objections. And so it went forward. And, and then he's taken over the team. He's in charge of all the decision-making process. Ron Devine is owner in name only. Um, I mean, he really, he's not making, he's not making any of the decisions. He's not making any of the financial decisions. So this essentially means the situation that Ron Devine had hoped to avoid he, in yeah. declaring chapter 11 bankruptcy essentially happened. It just happened with Matt Smith taking control of the team instead of Union Bank of Trust. Yeah, at that point, but Ron still had the hope that, you know, he could get it back. Mm -hmm. And so this was a, a you know, a temporary thing. I mean, obviously, Matt Smith, this, this trustee, was not going to be in charge of this team forever. And that was the question is what's going to happen to this team. And so Matt Smith's first goal was to let's see what we can do with this team. And now he said immediately from when he started, he started getting calls, uh, phone calls, emails, contacts from people interested in purchasing BK Racing, uh, the charter, assets, and things like that. And at that point he said, look, I want to get this team on its feet. I want to see where it is. You know, my job as, as, as a trustee is to determine, is it, is it best to continue? Is it best to liquidate everything? Is it best to sell to somebody else? From 2014 to 2016, according to the tax documents, the organization lost nearly $30 million. A low-budget team. You know, this goes back to how Ron Devine did things. You know, and, and this, was, this is one of the questions I asked him back in February, the day after he put the team in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, is, you know, here's a guy who's been in business and in all sorts of businesses, and he talked about he. You know, been in business 40 years, not had to go through this. And I'm like, okay, well, how does this happen? If you're, if, if you're so good in this, then why does this happen? And he says, look, I, I tried to do something different with this sport, and it didn't work out. And, and he tried to be independent, did not try to align. You know, they tried to build their own cars and, and do a lot of the work that instead of aligning with another organization, having a technical alliance that, you know, some of these technical alliances, you know, one organization builds the cars, the chassis for another one, or, or provides uh, engineering support and stuff like that. Ron basically tried to be, uh, I guess you want to say a renegade and do it on his own. That's all well and good, but you better have the, you better have the sponsorship. And if you don't have the sponsorship, you're just burning through cash. And and then you're needing to get loans, and then you're not paying this, and then you're not paying this, and, and, and all these bills show up. So, you know, that was what ended up happening and, and really kind of causing problems for him. That was how the team, as you said, listed according to court documents as losing $30 million over three years, owed $8 million to the bank, and owed $2.8 million, $2 million to the IRS. So the judge puts Matt Smith in charge of the team in March and essentially assigns him to, hey, evaluate the finances figure out what the best course of action is. Was there a possibility that it could have been awarded back to Ron Devine after Matt Smith had run it for a few months and determined that, like, hey, this operation can be solvent in the future and operating this way? Or was it always sort of destined, once it, once it went to a trustee, was it always sort of destined at that point to be sold? Basically what happened is, I want to say it was like June, is when Matt announced in court that the best option for this organization was to sell it. Uh, and basically, Matt's looking out for the creditor. That's a part of his job is he's got to look out for the creditors, which, you know, that's the bank, that's the IRS, that's companies that are owed. That's also employees. Now, there's different levels, secured creditors, which is the bank, because, you know, 
they're first in line because they have, you know, their loans are secured by assets that the team own, owns, uh, whereas employees, you know, are down at the bottom because just like any business, you know, you, you're paid, but you don't have control of assets and, and anything in the, co- in the company. And so, you know, his job is to look out for all, all the creditors and basically decided in June that everything, the money was so tight that this team had to be sold. Throughout this entire process, Ron Devine is attending these court hearings. And is he making the case that, hey, I can still run this team? Is he essentially like still trying to appeal to the judge that, hey, I think that... He's trying to do what he can. And early in the process, he had a lawyer. And then the lawyer filed documents that he was owed, I want to say it was $70,000 plus for all the time and effort he'd put in because he was working with helping provide all the financial details uh, to Matt Smith. Ron was representing himself and, 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 you know, told to go find another lawyer, Chapter 11 lawyer, and was unable to find somebody. So he's, he's at one of the tables with all the other lawyers, and he's kind of serving as his own lawyer advocate you know he's not a lawyer times he's even asking the judge questions of like okay i don't understand what's going on here can i do this can i do that and the judge is saying procedural questions yeah. because he's not as well versed in the law as somebody who practices because he doesn't have time. a lawyer to, to guide right. him through all this so in retrospect i don't know if you asked him this question dustin but filing for chapter 11 given the outcome was that the only option he felt like he had two days before the Daytona 500, or if he would have known everything that was going to transpire. I think at that point he was backed against the wall because he yeah. was going to be in court one way or the other. He was either going to be in state court with, you know, the bank looking to take over right before the Daytona 500, or he could drag this out and hope that there's reorganization and that the reorganization works in his favor, that he can get help reorganizing and then be back in charge of the of, of, of BK Racing and move forward from that so point. So he, he knew filing for reorganization, there was a chance that the court could go in this direction. I believe he probably did. I don't remember asking him that in particular, but... Uh, but he was probably hoping, like, best case scenario, yeah. they'll allow me to keep the team while yeah. I organize. And yeah. eventually the judge just decided, no, we're going to give it to this trustee who's going to evaluate yeah. it and determine the best course of action, which the team was put up for bid in a process that you were telling me just before we got started here was closed to the public. But yes took roughly three minutes according to what a lawyer what a lawyer said in court is it was a bidding process now it started off they had what was they called a stocking horse bid which they took uh bids and basically created the low end um Mm -hmm. type of thing and that was from gms president mike beam and it was for 1.8 million dollars for the charter for uh fixed assets including cars and things like that now part of the deal was that you had to uh, keep the employees on through the rest of the season and that the employees were all able to receive a $2,000 bonus if they stayed with the organization through the end of the season. This was an organization that had approximately 20 employees. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at essentially 40, 40 you know, no more than $50,000 is what was supposed to be allotted for this. You know, you have the stocking horse bid. So basically, that was supposed to be an opportunity for anybody to come in. You know, Matt Smith had said in court at one point that he had been contacted by, you know, more than two dozen individuals interested in assets, aspects of the team. Well, as it turns out, there was only one bid, and and that was from Front Row Motorsports. That was for $2 million. Everybody in the courtroom 
talked about how disappointing the bid was in the, in the sense of they were hoping for more. And, and to put it in perspective, you know, and this came out in the court documents that in December 2016, BK Racing sold one of its charters originally. And remember, it had two charters when the charter system came out for the 83 car and the 23. It sold the charter to the 83 car in December 2016 to Front Row Motorsports for $2 million. Now you have a bid for the charter and cars and equipment for $2 million. So in essence, Front Row Motorsports, a year and a half later, paid less. You said, Dustin, the, the bid was disappointing yes. as viewed by the courtroom. What was expected to be the number? They never said what the number was, but, I, you know, obviously, you know, if you're the bank and you're owed $9 million, you certainly want closer to that. Um, <laughs> but, it, but as you said, like the the charter went for $2 million yeah. uh, for less assets uh, yeah. to front row a year and a half earlier. So they couldn't have been expecting more than three or... F- I, I had somebody tell me they thought it'd only get up to about 2.5. They thought that's about where the bidding would go, depending on who was going to be involved in it. After starting, as we said, uh, 1.8 million. But I think, I think some of those in the courtroom were kind of hoping for three or more. To only have one bid, and where it had been stated in court, there had been, I think, you know, about 30 interested parties at one point or another the lawyers used it matt smith used the term his lawyer used it the judge used it i think everybody used it is that it was a disappointing sale and that they they thought it could get more but uh and it's a mystery why there weren't more bidders (laughs) was there any reason provided for that no 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 i mean that that was that was that was the thing everybody was kind of wondering about is just where did everybody go now obviously they did sell some other assets they did sell some uh chassis in various shapes and, and uh, I guess, in, in various uh, levels of, of uh, full chassis, partial chassis to Abaca Racing, and that was for $265,000. And they did sell a tractor trailer to Rick uh, Rick Ware Racing for 35000 which was a trailer he'd already been leasing and been paying a little bit each week to lease the, the truck. So end of the day, the total sales essentially 2.4 for for all the things that they did and I, I think that they were certainly looking for a lot more than that. Okay, let's pause the podcast here. I want to tell you about a product that is designed for guys who want to stop hair loss. Now, I've been fortunate enough to avoid that, but as someone in my 40s, I certainly have a lot of friends who are facing hair loss. I think it's no secret that I've covered many NASCAR drivers who have also found themselves facing hair loss. It's a situation that millions have faced. Two-thirds of men start losing their hair before turning 35. And I'm sure many who have a little less hair than before have wondered if there's a real solution. Well, there is. To help guys with preventing or stopping hair loss, there is Keeps. Keeps offers generic versions of two FDA-approved hair loss products. Both of them have longevity in the market, but now they are cheaper and easier to obtain. It takes less than five minutes to sign up for Keeps. I've been to the website, you answer a few questions, you take a few photos, and a licensed doctor will review the information and provide a treatment plan for about 10 to 30 dollars a month or a dollar a day this is an affordable and great way to help fight your hair loss but even better is that we have a deal for you your first monthly keeps is free if you use this offer to receive your first month of treatment for free go to keeps.com nascar that's k-e-e-p-s dot com slash nascar that's a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash nascar keeps hair today 
hair tomorrow. And now let's return to our conversation. Let's talk a little bit more about what happens next. You mentioned the assets being sold to a few entities and then BK Racing essentially is now running through the end of the season under the purview of Front Row Motorsports, which also owns the charter. And then after that, the plan is for BK Racing at the end of the 2018 season to essentially be shut down and the charter will be sold by Front Row to somebody else? Well, it's, I mean, there's one, you know, Jerry Freeze, general manager, was in the courtroom. Bob Jenkins, the owner of Front Row Motorsports, was uh, attended the hearing by phone, uh, on, on the phone. Uh, talked to Jerry afterwards and asked what was, you know, the plans with it. And, you know, they would like to be a three-car team. That being said, one of the questions I asked him was like, okay, it's, it's almost September. How realistic is it to be a three-car team and have the proper funding of sponsorship for next season? You know, this is a team that's trying to make sure it's got the 34 and the 38, Michael McDowell and David Reagan fully funded, and, and, and what they're going to do with those cars and those drivers and things like that. It just seems like it's going to be really tough. I said, I, I, it seems like this is going to be quite a challenge. He's like, yeah, it, it will be. And, you know, in that sense, that tells me they may look at leasing, which would give it the opportunity to have somebody hold it for a year. Then they, it gives them another year to. What happens to all the equipment and everything that's being used by BK Racing now through the end of 2018. Is that what's being sold off to these other teams and everything like that? Well, Front Row is going to be, you know, they've, they've, they've got the uh, the assets because they've still got to put the team out there. So now here's the thing is BK is a Toyota team. Front Row is a, a Ford team. So, you know, Jerry Free said, no, we're not changing manufacturers. So, yeah, at the end of the season, the expectation is there's, you know, they're not going to have any need for that equipment. I, the physical assets, I, I – I, I got to think those go away because again, I mean, I think there's, hmm. you know, maybe the chassis you can, you can, you can use some of that, but the body works since it's Toyota, you're not going to use. Uh, maybe if there's some of the equipment that you can use to supplement what you have in your shop, but it may be a case of uh, some things may get uh, may get sold off, or uh, maybe they just get integrated in the in the shop somehow to to help them make, you know better performing cars. Right. And then the other assets that have been sold as part of this, th those are separate from what yes. BK Racing yeah. is using right now to go race week to week. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Where does this leave us on the charter situation? <laughs> that Wait, let's just break that down real quick. Now this is the ninth charter of which one charter was sold twice, but this is the ninth sell, ninth charter to be sold. You know, you still also got teams that are leasing charters. Uh, Richard Petty Motorsports we received two charters at the beginning of this. They've leased both charters out once each and one of the agreements with this with the charters is that you can only lease it once every five years so there's a question at richard petty motorsports is like what are they going to do because they've leased both of their charters they either have to run a second car next year or they're going to have to sell one and i mean that was one of the things that i talked with uh with the executives over at richard petty motorsports uh when i was spending the week with them uh leading into bristol uh, for that series of stories inside Richard Petty Motorsports. And, you know, one of the comments they made back to me is, well, we'll have to be creative. So if you're looking at wanting to get a, a, a charter, you know, Front Row Motorsports is sitting on four, and it's probably a two-car team next year. So there's two out there that can be leased, maybe even one that's purchased. Richard Petty Motorsports has got two charters. One of the things they talked about repeatedly when I spent time with them is just how they just didn't have sponsorship. You know, what are they going to do because they need the sponsorship? I think it was seven of the last 13 races when I talked to them. Uh, what's going to happen to Richard Childress Racing? That's a two-car team, you know, this year, but it's got three charters. They leased one out to Starcom Racing. Do they just keep doing that back and forth, or does that come back and they find sponsorship for a third team? 
what about GMS? You know, Mike Beam, president of GMS Racing, making this uh, bid uh, on the BK team. Obviously, Maury Gallagher is a part of that. Mm -hmm. You know, Maury has talked about wanting to move up to Cup. Does this now present the opportunity for GMS? Is maybe is this the right time? Is you kind of got an idea what charters are going to cost? Uh, do you go look at Richard Petty Motorsports? Do you go over to Front Row Motorsports? Is there someone? Is there another one out there that's that's uh, that could be leased? Lots of unknowns there yeah. on, on the charter side. One of the things that has also been sort of clouded in secrecy, Dustin, since the start of the charter system was the purse payouts. And yeah. that was one thing that really came to light because of this uh, bankruptcy filing with BK Racing because we had access to the books, essentially, on what the team made until they sealed the trace. it. Until they sealed <laughs> it. But for the first... A after, after we... <laughs> yeah. We got it in, and then after that, it stayed sealed. But after the first few races of 2018, we did get a glimpse yes. into how a cup team operates in terms of purse money, which, again, since 2016, NASCAR always disclosed purse money yep. until two years ago, and since then, they have not. And it's made it a lot more difficult, I think, to discern how teams are existing in terms of their yeah. financial structure and model. So let's close here by by talking about what we learned from uh, the BK Racing uh, court documents. We learned uh, at the Phoenix Cup race that the team actually had nearly $800 in net income, uh, despite the fact that they only had $30,000 of sponsorship for that race. BK Racing earned $82,000 for a 34th place finish. Uh, it also had $8,250 in other revenues, which uh, Warren explained. That would equal what? That, that's close to $120,000. The expenses for the Phoenix race were about about that, yeah. about $120,000. So what we learn here, the documents show that BK Racing budgeted about $103,000 per race. And, if and, we're, and, and I mean, that's bare bones. Right. I mean, right. I mean, because one of the things that was interesting about this is, and it came out in court documents, is that the engine lease. Okay, this is, you know, this, as you mentioned, this is a 34th place team. The engine lease would be $35,000 per race. And now this year you had to run a sealed engine uh, some races. So if you ran the sealed engine, it was 28000 because there wasn't as much work to do. So, all right. They get eighty-two thousand dollars for finishing, you know, thirty-fourth at Phoenix. Thirty-five of that, thirty-five thousand of that is engine lease. I mean, you're right off the bat. So, I mean, you're almost talking half of what they earned. And again, this is a lower rung team, but I think you can take the model and say, okay, the further up you are, the more you're going to pay in your engine lease. I, it wouldn't surprise me if, for for some of the bigger teams, it's 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 a third of, in essence, what they earn. Or, or 40%. And that goes back to, you know, what teams talk about. Um, while this is this charter system is good in the sense that it provides a certain amount of money and they can budget that, this sport still relies on sponsorship. And you've got to have that sponsorship. You're not going to you're not gonna break even. And even this $30,000 in sponsorship, you know, this was a sponsor that Ron got uh, and this because this was early in the season with BK Racing. And, and, and part of the payout was in stock or product in kind. The list thirty thousand dollars in sponsorship. I don't get the sense that that was thirty thousand dollars in cash. I almost consider what they had for that race was a loss because I, I I'm not sure I'd view thirty thousand as cash in hand. You know, it, that's how tight it can be and how much sponsorship really means to to these teams. And mm -hmm. and and 
that's it puts into perspective like what a team like Richard Petty Motorsports is trying to do, where they don't have the the sponsorship uh, outside of the the owners' companies and, and trying to run these races and trying to do what they can with with Bubba. But I think it also brings into context, Dustin, the fact that hey, and if if you're budgeting a hundred and three thousand dollars a race. <laughs> Or it, let's just take the Phoenix race. That was $120,000 yeah. in cost. If you extrapolate that out over the course of a 36-race season, that's roughly $4.3 million, yeah. which is far less than what we normally hear about what it takes to compete in the Cup Series. And normally we're hearing that it costs about five times yeah. at least as much to run a competitive race team. Now, granted, that, those are competitive top-of-the-line costs. Right. But what I take <laughs> away from this is that, yes, you need some sponsorship to defray costs, but if you're willing to be a bare-bones race team and and just go out there and take your lumps every week and run 25th to 40th or whatever every week with just enough employees to like get you to the track and a driver that you're going to pay probably a minimal amount. Well, or, or some cases, this was a driver that's paying to be in the ride. Right. Because early in the season, uh, that was Greg Galding in the car, and they were paying to be in that car. So the driver was not getting – because that was one of the things that was brought up in court when they were going through the line-by-line. Line, and the, one of the questions asked is, why is there a zero by the, the what you're paying the driver for these races? And they're like, well <laughs> – He's not getting anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That is what I'm most struck by, that – like the expenses breakdown for the Daytona 500 was $135,000, $50,000 for the engine, which as you said, normally that's $35,000 per yep. race at, at Daytona, the elongated schedule, it's $50,000, yep. $21,000 on salary and wages, $10,500 on airfare, $9,000 on tires, $9,000 on payroll. And they made, the team made for finishing 20th in the Daytona 500, $428,794. Now granted, that's the biggest race of the year. Yep. That's out of whack from what the pay structure normally is. But if you can make 82000 as we just said, for finishing 34th at Phoenix, it, it seems like the numbers are sort of there. If you want to be a run-of-the-mill, back-of-the-pack team, it seems like the charter system right now provides but I, I'll, I'll a say route this. for that. In, 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 in talking with Ron Devine, he never intended for this to be right. a back-of-the-pack right. team. So he, he was trying, in his mind, to be as good as possible – but the way that he went about, and he later admitted, was the wrong way to do it for for a, a low budget team like that. You know, yeah, you can cut your expenses, uh, but again, this is this is like twenty some employees at the, at this time, twenty twenty five employees. And if you have greater success, then what's the next next thing you want to do? Okay, well, we're a thirtieth to twenty fifth place car. All right, now what do we need to do to be a twenty fifth to twentieth place car? All right. Well, now we need to spend this much more money. We need to do this much more money, and it just, as you talk about it, it just escalates. And so, there may be a place where you can kind of get around this. And again, there are some teams that are, are surviving at this point. I mean, uh, you know, Premium Motorsports is a team that is kind of in this range uh, with running with the, with the 23. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a group of cars that are trying to race each other for trying to outdo each other, and essentially that's that's kind of the race is. You know, the 23 car is looking at uh, what the premium motorsports car does, what the TriStar motorsports car does. Can they beat those cars on a, on a given weekend? If so, in essence, that's a good weekend. If that means you're 33rd and those other cars are 34th and 35th, then you gained, you know, a little bit. I, I know that they tried to – I know a good finish would have been, you know, inside the top 30. When they sent out that budget, if I remember, I think they kind of estimated uh, like uh, an average of 30th place finish is how they tried to budget what what the – what the cost was, and that's, 
you know, they're they're a thirty second, thirty third place team. So to me, like that is maybe the most interesting yeah. things that emerges from this bankruptcy filing is that if you are a back of the pack team and you are willing again to just accept that you're going to finish thirtieth or worse every week, you can still make the numbers work financially with a modicum of sponsorship and perhaps a driver that you're not paying, as you said. It seems like the numbers work better, I think, than maybe many of us would expect. And maybe so. But again, the challenge is also you have to be careful. And again, as 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 this team was doing, you know, this team has, is, you know, the 23 team is in, in jeopardy of being in, in the bottom three among the car owners points for two years in a row. So th- with this type of model. As you perform less, your earnings go down. Yeah. And yeah. so, okay, let's say that you know, let's say that this team wasn't sold and was remained in BK Racing and finished in the bottom three. The next year, if you're Ron Devine or whoever's owning the team, you've got to step it up, and it's regardless of whether you have the the sponsorship. And that becomes the challenge: is is you've got to you've got to get out of that bottom hole. And if you're owing all this money, how how are you going to do it? I mean, there's only so much you can cut. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, and I think they've kind of bare bones it as much as they could. Now maybe there's a little bit more they can cut. You know, for a team like this, I think they were they were kind of um, as ex- about as extreme as you can be. Um, other teams may be able to make it work a little bit more if you have more sponsorship. Um, you know, maybe there's a way to uh, you know that helps with the cost, and you can be kind of keep it maybe responsible or reasonable in terms of uh, you know what your what your costs are, how many employees you have, and things like that. That, that there's, maybe there's a way to make money if you're fine with running. You're not going to compete for wins too often, that's for sure. All right, Dustin. Well, again, we appreciate your time on here. A lot was learned from this, and this is the value of covering. And you know, people ask, like, why would you go sit in a courtroom for hours at a time? <laughs> it's to learn these little nuggets that we get through public documents, right? This oh. is the purpose of court reporting. That and going to the courthouse and looking up documents. I mean, when drivers sue teams, you see uh, contracts in there. You know, other sports when Odell Beckham. Just signed the what the largest contract in NFL history for a receiver. We know we know it was at ninety five million dollars or something like that over the term. When Kevin Harvick signed his extension, they weren't even telling us the years. It was just long term, let alone the money. So I, I remember years ago when Casey Kane jumped from Ford and went to Everham, and then Ford sued Kane for making that jump to a Dodge team, and they put the contract in there. And it was interesting how much Kane was going to make as a rookie back then and i want to say it was almost a million dollars just base and then it was percentage of of if you want like maybe 50 percent if you won the race and 40 45 percent if you finished top 10 and anything below top 10 was like 35 percent and then it was a percentage of merchandise sales it was things that uh, they don't get broken down and then that's the one thing with with the model that nascar has and and with the drivers being independent contractors that there isn't this format for to, to see how much. We both have heard stories about some of the base salaries of some of these guys in, in years past and how it might have been in the tens of millions, but it's it, there's never been a document sure. to show you, show you that it is. Until it's a matter of public record, yeah. it's hard to say definitively, and that's, again, the value of court reporting and, and open records. So appreciate you investing all that time, Dustin, and uh, if people want to check out your coverage, go to NBCSports.com slash NASCAR, and uh, if you click on the tag at the bottom of each story, there's a tag for BK Racing that will bring up all of Dustin's stories in addition to all the coverage. He's also got a lot of the documents from the filings posted with the stories so definitely check that out dustin thanks for being on thank you very much the nascar nbc podcast is available on apple podcasts stitcher google play spotify 
please leave a rating review if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. And as always, you can send me feedback on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR on NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.